everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is the CEO and founder of Bring Concierge, Nicole Wegman. Nicole Wegman started this company by bootstrapping and has grown it with no outside investment to a hugely successful fine jewelry platform. And she's just getting started. Take a listen. Nicole, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So excited to be here. So let's start off with what is Ring Concierge? Ring Concierge is a fine jewelry company, but what really differentiates us from the rest of the industry is that we are female founded and female run. And this is more than just, you know, internally who we hire. It is the entire ethos for the company. So We really like to market to women directly. We encourage them to buy their own fine jewelry, and we offer pieces starting at $70, and they go all the way up into the seven figures. We have everything you could ever want made of gold, diamonds, or platinum. So think anything from inklets and, you know, cute stacking studs all the way up to 10 carat plus diamond engagement rings. So we really have everything for everyone. So now when, when one does research into the diamond and gold industry, it is definitely a male-dominated world. What, what made you want to start something and go up against not only you know, a male-dominated environment, but also legacy brands that have been there forever? So I was always in fashion. I went to school for fashion. I started my career out in product development and then buying. I was at Bloomingdale's. And so I just thought my entire career path would be in apparel and accessories. And when I went through the engagement ring process myself, so this was 10 years ago now, I started looking for an engagement ring, which you know usually the path is the woman does get started on the research and figuring out her preferences. And I went to the Diamond District in New York City and the experience was, I mean, sketchy is basically the way I would describe it. I don't know if you've ever walked 47th Street, have you? Uh, I have. It's not that pleasant. Not pleasant at all. And an engagement ring is typically the most expensive purchase a couple makes unless they already own their own home. So this is a big deal, this purchase. And I didn't know who I could trust. I didn't like the settings I was seeing. I didn't know, you know, do I buy the diamond from one person and have the setting made somewhere else? How does this work? Why is it completely male dominated? And they're all, you know, like these older men, they don't get me. Alternatively, you know, we went into Harry Winston and Tiffany and everything is lovely, but you couldn't, I couldn't afford anything. I could get a spec, you know, for $50,000, you get a spec. So that didn't work. And that's when I realized there was this huge void and need for a female run company that is millennial focused and not only creating products a millennial would want, but also creating a shopping experience that millennials would want for such an important purchase. So you had this idea. What did you have to do to actually bring it to life? I started slowly. The first few years of the business were definitely a slow grow, but I just started with friends and family and referrals and started figuring out what does it mean to make an engagement ring? Because the business just started with engagement rings. How does this work? How do I navigate this very, very opaque industry? Who can I trust? Who can I partner with? Where do I get the diamonds? So there was definitely a lot of exploring. I didn't, you know, do any kind of 
formal training or mentorship. Mentorship. I didn't work at any jewelry companies. I just kind of navigated it and found a few people I could trust who helped me figure out those first few years and started getting clients via word of mouth slowly. What did you run into? Did you run into like people's doubts, hesitations, you know, gold is expensive, diamonds are expensive, the overhead, you know, like what, what sort of criticism or hardships did you face and how did you overcome those? The biggest challenge I had in the beginning was finding the right partners within the industry. I didn't have an issue getting clients because I was the right age in the right city. You know, my husband worked in finance at the time. And so half of his friends needed a ring and my friends were all getting engaged. So that piece of it was actually easy getting the clients. And they they trusted me because they knew, you know, I had a strong aesthetic and they didn't want to navigate this industry on their own. So that wasn't problematic. Finding people to partner with in the industry was challenging simply because they didn't take me seriously. You know, like we talked about, they are primarily men. And the way it works is everything is family run. So these men took the company over from their fathers and they plan to pass it down to their sons. And it's a very, you know, trust-based, relationship-based industry. And here I am coming in with no relevant experience, absolutely no connection, saying, you know, I need diamonds. I, I need to figure this out. I have this business idea. So they kind of looked at me like this silly girl who just likes jewelry and sure, sure. So that was really the biggest challenge is finding people I that respected me and that I could respect in return to work with so I could actually create the rings because there was a demand. Right. And so once you kind of convince them, you know, how long do you feel like it took you internally to get sort of that respect within the people you're dealing with, vendors, like all the people that originally had doubted you? Years, many years. And the first few partners I found were wonderful. And, you know, they were a little younger. They got it. They understood the importance of social media and all of the things I was going to utilize to grow the business. So I I don't want to say everybody was difficult because there were a few key players who were awesome. But, you know, the the people that doubted me in the beginning, it probably took 5 years for that for it to circle back where all of a sudden they wanted to work with ring concierge and at that point I didn't necessarily need all of them. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, like, it felt kind of good if we're being honest that now they're trying to work with us and we've grown so big that we don't, we don't need to work with people we don't want to work with. You had your pretty woman moment. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, most people today experience um, a lot of not wanting to wait, you know, wanting instant gratification. You're saying that it took almost five years before you could establish trust with people that, you know, we're uncertain. What do you advise to women listening to really be able to say, okay, I'm in this for the long haul, not this instant gratification. I'm going to be rich in the first year, you know? Yep. So I think I approached the launch and growth of Ring Concierge very, very differently than most founders do, not just female founders, but founders right now. I never took outside capital. I was lucky that, you know, I was married and we had a dual income household, so I could lean on my husband's income and, you know, in the very beginning when I wasn't making as much money, but it was profitable from year one. And there's never been a year where Ring Concierge wasn't profitable. But the reason for this is because I grew carefully and slowly and thoughtfully. I never wanted to 
take the approach of, you know, growth above all else, which is what most startups these days tend to do. You know, they take outside capital, they grow as fast as humanly possible, whether that be acquiring new customers or increasing revenue, but they're not actually profitable. And so I never wanted this. I wanted to maintain as much ownership as possible and autonomy. So Every decision I made was, can we actually afford to make this? Will this result in a financially sound decision? And this meant paying myself very, very little. For many, many years, I basically made nothing. And I was okay with that because I was in it for the long game. So most most people don't do what you do. They immediately start a company. They have their deck ready. They want to go out and raise money. I hate that. I hate that version. I'm always like telling women, hold on, do exactly what you're saying. What made you take that path? Because so many people don't take it. I think because I started the company not meaning to. I didn't go out there and say, I want to be an entrepreneur. I now looking back, definitely always had that itch and just didn't recognize it. I didn't launch this saying, I want to get rich. I launched it because I said, I think there's something here. Let me try it out. And it started to work. And like I said, it was profitable year one. Not, I didn't, you know, not by a ton or the revenue was small, but I wasn't losing money. And so I don't think I even began to realize how big it could be and how big it's become until many years in. And then at that point, cash flow was so strong that raising capital just wasn't even a consideration. You know, why five years in would I give away equity if we could continue to fund our initiatives ourselves? Um, you don't need to. (laughs) I love that. So now that you have, you know, a rapidly growing company, your cash flow positive, what do you envision as where you want to take the company to? We have really big goals. The way this industry works is very different than others in terms of fragmentation. It is extremely fragmented. It's a hundred billion dollar industry in the U.S., And the large publicly traded companies, you know, like Signet, who owns, for example, Jared's and K's and those type of mall stores, they are by far the biggest player in the industry, and they only take up 6% of the market share. And, you know, Tiffany takes up 2%, for example, and you would think they would take up way more than that. They don't. So the 90% of the industry is run by mom and pops, small locally owned jewelry stores. So the ability for us to continue to take market share and grow and become the brand that anyone, any millennial or Gen Z or even doesn't, they don't consider anyone else but ring concierge when it comes to where they get their jewelry from and their engagement ring. It's a very real opportunity and we're doing it. So we have multiple strategies to get there. But one of the more exciting strategies is a physical retail expansion plan you know, we want a really killer flagship in New York City. What does that look like? We want to expand to other cities, maybe Chicago, Texas, LA. I'm not sure we're thinking about it, but we've always been an e-commerce brand. And what does it mean now to create in-person experiences? I want to know. <laughs> I want to know what you're planning. We're talking about this all the time, you know, because we shut down our stores during the during the pandemic, and now we're like, okay, as we come back, what is this experience? What what do people want? Which is a fascinating exercise to sort of go through again because it's not it's not what it was. And we actually took the opposite approach during the pandemic, which we said, and it was in 2021, I believe. Um, 
we said, let's open a store because rents were so low in the city. We could get a killer deal, a short lease, really a really good price on rent. And we opened our first retail store on Bleecker Street in the West Village in Q4 of 2021. And it's been wildly successful. The reason we want wow. to think about a big flagship is because it's not enough space. There's a line around the corner every weekend to get into the store. So I think the point is people were stuck home for almost two years shopping online and luckily shopping online like crazy. So most retailers did well, but there is definitely a desire to go in person because we couldn't for so long. Yeah, totally agree. And how do you how do you credit the fact that you're selling gold diamonds? Yes, you have things that start at $74, but I'm assuming the bulk of your sales are, you know, bigger than that. Yet we're going into a recession. Is it just that love never gets old and people are willing to spend recession or not during these times? So we're obviously looking at the economy carefully. Luxury surely takes a hit during a recession. It did in 2008. You know, we are starting to try to forecast what could happen. We still feel really good about continuing to grow. Our current plans and what we've done year over year for the past many years is we've doubled as a company in revenue, and we don't want to not be able to do this next year. We're on track to do it this year. So engagements don't stop just because it's a recession. What happens is the budgets go down, but people still get married. They don't stop. They don't put their lives on hold. So thinking through what does that mean? We know, you know, average ticket for engagement rings will go down, but that flow will continue. So how do we beef up volume to make up for the decrease in single sale margins? And then when it comes to fine jewelry, you know, can we figure out a way to incentivize people to still buy fine jewelry, buy fine jewelry? And does that mean coming out with a really strong opening price point line? Or does it just mean we target that? Um, you know, the wealthy and and assume that they can still shop during a recession. We're looking at many things, but I'm actually not wildly concerned just because of how much market share we've been taking from others. And if we continue to take that, by default, we will grow even if individual shopping habits slow a little. And why do you think what you do is so different and unique? Like you said, you're taking market share from others. Like what about your strategy makes it so that that growth is as strong as it's been. So I don't think this is necessarily such a genius thing that we do if you look at the fashion industry, because most fashion companies and retailers do operate this way, but in jewelry, they don't. So our blend and what makes us so special is we have really cool product. It is you know, arguably trend setting in the industry when it comes to jewelry. People love our styles. Our price points are really sharp. We work at tight margins. You know, obviously we're profitable, so there is a bare minimum, but we don't mark things up the way some of these big jewelry houses do, like a Tiffany or Harry Winston, where they're at like a 300% markup. We do not operate that way. So there is an accessibility that other companies don't offer. We heavily utilize social media so you feel very connected with our brand. We have half a million followers. They're extremely engaged. I show myself all the time so they know there's a face behind the brand. It's not just some opaque jewelry company saying shop with us. And we have amazing customer service. So it's this blend that truly does not exist in the industry. This is why we're taking so much market share.
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So what challenges do you face today and does that keep you up at night? I think our biggest challenge has always been handling the growth. When you double year over year, that means all of your operations double. The number of packages that we ship out double. Our headcount needs to essentially double. And fueling that growth in terms of team support and capability, that has been our biggest challenge. It's never been acquiring the new customers or getting the revenue. It's how can we actually handle this intense growth we're facing as a company without letting anything slip from a customer perspective? That's our biggest challenge, and that's what my biggest focus typically is on. And would you say that in that growth, you've made mistakes, and what were some of those mistakes? Oh, definitely. I think I can't even, there's not, there's never been a single huge mistake, but you know, thousands of little ones. And I think being able to brush it off and pivot and learn is something that we really stand by. We encourage everybody to make mistakes. You know, please don't make the mistake, the same mistake twice. Let's not do that. But try things, test things, go for it. If you're not making mistakes, you cannot grow. That really is something I believe in. And then the other piece of it is I, if you're not learning from the mistakes, then there's no point in having made one in the first place. So, you know, just even when it comes down to thinking I made a really smart hire and they didn't work out, you know, there were so many things in the beginning that I messed up on, but you get better and you figure out how to hire people who are good and strong in the areas you're not and recognizing the areas you're not strong in. I think that's super, super important as a leader in a company. So you're young, you're leading an entire company. I'd love to know some successful tips that maybe you can pass on to others who are just founding their company or just like figuring it out. What have been some things that have helped you? Because I feel like sometimes youth is on our side and sometimes people don't take us seriously, you know, having started out so young and and starting something on our own. Yeah, that's a great question. I would recommend if you're starting out hiring consultants in the areas you don't have a lot of knowledge in. Because not everybody can 
afford to hire these A-list employees from day one. Typically you can't. So what I always did was the areas I was not strong in, like HR, operations, finance. In the beginning, I hired really good consultants and they either managed those areas for me or I met with them regularly to make sure I was on the right track. And then I slowly replaced most of them with internal hires when I could afford to hire the right caliber person. That is something I'd highly recommend because it really gives you financial flexibility. You know, if you if revenue starts to slow, you just tell them we don't need your service anymore. It's not like you're, you know, firing people. Um, another piece of advice I think would be to trust your gut when it comes to the vision of your company or your brand. I don't think you should assume you know everything and you know best because that's typically not true, but there are always certain areas and reasons why you became an entrepreneur that only you can run and manage. And just trusting your gut and staying true to your vision is really, really important when defining yourself as a leader and defining your company in the space. Totally. Um, you mentioned you really leverage social to build your company. And I know today everyone's trying to figure out how do you use social <laughs> to grow your company? Um, so what what did you do and how did you how did you attack it? I started using Instagram very early on. It was, you know, 10 years ago, right around the time that most fashion retailers were starting to figure out how to use it. Nobody in jewelry was using it. Let me tell you that because that industry, the industry is hundred years behind. So nobody was using it there. So I was one of the first, which really helped catapult us ahead because at the time I wasn't even using paid ads. It was completely organic. So it was free. It was just my time. So it was a really great marketing tool that cost me nothing. But now obviously social media, there's a big pay to play element. And of course we have a paid ad budget, but I still... Focus on Ring Concierge being a personality-led brand. I'm lucky that I am pretty much in line with our target audience. You know, I live in New York City. I'm a millennial. I'm female. I'm maybe a little older at this point. I'm in my mid-30s and people getting engaged, but I'm not so far off. So I can show my life and how I wear the jewelry and how I interact with the brand in a way that everyone that follows is really connecting. And so now not only do they love the product and our services, they also love the personality and they feel like they understand who's behind the brand, which increase, increases trust because fine jewelry is expensive and it's a big deal to purchase it. So they trust the brand. They trust me. They trust my aesthetic. It, they know all these pieces have my stamp of approval. And that has been a huge strategy of ours is how much of myself can we show in a way that is effective and that customers can really engage with us in a way you can't with most retailers that don't have a personality behind the brand. Yep. That's what we find again and again, every time we survey our community, it's the exact same. So couldn't agree more. And on the personal side, like, have you been successful in carving out a personal life? Or do you feel like in the first, you know, couple of years, it was giving everything to this? And if you did build a personal life, you know, how do you sort of toggle between that? I had very, very little work-life balance for a very long time. I think it took about eight years and getting pregnant to force myself to give up um, control in different areas. And a lot of it was because we didn't have outside capital. So I had to be scrappy and all of the team members had to be scrappy. We had to put in the hours in order to achieve our goals because we couldn't just 
pour money into into hiring people. Um, I got pregnant and I just knew it was completely unrealistic to keep working 10 plus hour days, six to seven days a week. It's not possible. And it forced me to build out an executive team. I hired a president. Um, you know, we hired director level employees. We promoted some people. And only then was I able to step back. And I now do have a pretty good balance. It's not great. It's never going to be as good as just taking a regular nine to five job at a large company. But it's balanced enough where I feel like I'm spending enough time with my baby and my friends, but also I'm still focusing on ring concierge in a way that I can really still contribute and grow the company. I was the same way and I always find it crazy that it took us like birthing a human to force us to stop. <laughs> I know, but it does change your perspective. You know, you're just like, it's not realistic. I can't even take a maternity leave the way I'm currently running things. So it was a forced change. And in letting go, was that hard? Not at all. I am definitely not a micromanager. I'm not a control freak. And once I have people that I trust, I really trust them. I let them run things. They are autonomous. So I don't have a problem letting go once I find the right people for the seat. So one of the, one of the things that I love exploring with some of the women on my podcast who have had success is what continues to excite you? You know, I think sometimes you say, if I could just get to here, uh, then I'll feel great. And you get there and then you're like, oh, huh, okay. And they're like, okay, next goal, bigger goal, bigger goal. Like, do you encounter that or do you like, how do you keep fueling yourself to be excited about what you're doing? I don't have a plan to exit. I didn't start this to sell it. So because of that, I don't have these set goals. You know, when we reach X in revenue, I feel like I've done what I need to do. I don't operate that way. I just constantly goal to double every year. That is a consistent goal is that everybody in the company is aware of and that we communicate. Beyond that, the, re the rest is very flexible and fluid. And depending on trends and what's working, we adjust, we pivot, we change. The areas that excite me would be marketing. That's where probably 90% of my focus is because marketing obviously is what's going to fuel the 2x growth. I'm still heavily involved in product. That's where I started in the, you know, in my career was heavy hand in product. So I'm very focused on that and just high level strategy. I love thinking through with really smart people. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. What are different ways we can grow? You know, what does that mean for retail? What does that mean for website overhaul and user experience? Those are the three areas that I spend my time in and love to think about. So the last two questions I have, which I ask almost everyone on the podcast, is what would we be surprised to know about you? And the second question is if you had any piece of advice, whether learn the hard way or um, given to you by another that was actually helpful, would love to pass it on. I think people would be surprised that I can be very socially uncomfortable in certain scenarios. You know, I'm a very confident person with the majority of my life. I am very confident to lead the company. I feel confident in my abilities. I show myself on Instagram all day long, every day, you know, everything there is to know about me and my life and my family. But if you tell me I have to go to this party alone where I don't know anybody, I'm like dying inside. I can fake it. I can fake it very, very well. But 
I get really uncomfortable in those situations. And I don't think anyone knows this about me or would ever even realize it in person. No. And even in this interview, you don't come off that way at all. <laughs> so well, I'm actually really comfortable because here we are just talking business. Like this type of stuff I can do all day and I feel so confident. It's just these like in-person social scenarios where I don't have someone I'm attending with and don't know people there. I, I really don't like that. I don't know what it is, but I really don't like it. I feel you. It's never fun. It's always putting yourself out there a bit. Um, and then what is one piece of advice you'd like to leave us with? Oof, that's a good one because I always feel like there's so many. This was something that I learned from Jessica Elba, actually, when I went to a conference that she was speaking at. And it was about five years ago. And so the company was smaller and it really resonated with me. And I think it will resonate with most entrepreneurs if they're in those beginning few years and starting to really grow. Typically, the team you start the company with are not necessarily the right people to help you grow once you reach a certain size. So her example was she ended up a few years in when Honest Company started to really blow up. She made a very difficult decision to replace her C-suite and bring on people who really understood how to scale and improve processes and all of that. And I was feeling a very similar thing at the time in Bring Concierge. I didn't have C-level employees. you know, I didn't have funding to hire really senior employees, but I was finding the team I had who were incredible to help me start it because they were scrappy and they were cool working out of my apartment. They weren't really the right fit when we started to get big and professional. You know, they had a hard time adapting to changes. They didn't love when I was bringing in new hires that might be more senior than, with, than them. They didn't get on board with new systems. And so I slowly, they either left or I ended up replacing them. Not everybody, but it was a really hard pill to swallow because I was connected with them and they helped me grow. But I do think this is a common thing entrepreneurs face and it's it's uncomfortable and it's not ideal, but it is high, typically reality in order to hit the next level. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you want to hold on to your team. It feels like family. And then, you know, people tap out, right? Because the people that, again, were willing to work in your apartment aren't necessarily the people that are going to know all the new systems and infrastructure required for a much more sophisticated company. As terrible as that is. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't happy either. It was a pretty mutual thing on the most part that this isn't really working anymore. You you were amazing and I'll give you amazing references, but this is no longer a good fit. Yeah. Oh, it's depressing and sad, but very true. <laughs> um, so where can everyone find out about Ring Concierge, follow you, follow all, all the handles? Yep. So our URL is just ringconcierge.com. And our Instagram handle is at Ring Concierge. So find us there. I recommend starting with the Instagram. Get to know the brand and get to know me. And then hopefully you shop. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt but it actually helps with search and algorithm. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. 
I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again and you will hear from me next week.